Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. Last week, we talked about how false teachers were apparently teaching the Colossians that if you really want to be spiritual and close to God, you must keep all kinds of rules and regulations. Things like observing special religious days, abstaining from certain foods, worshiping angels, and practicing asceticism, which means harsh treatment of the body. Paul says these are simply man-made rules created because the false teachers have lost their connection with Christ. But the fact that we should not focus our spirituality on man-made rules does not mean there are no God-made rules that God expects us to follow. In chapter 3, Paul will talk about the kinds of behavior God expects of his people. Before we dig in, I want to point out, as you well know, that Paul's letters are often deep and very complex. And there's obviously different ways of preaching them. One way is to focus on just one, two, or three big ideas and give lots of illustrations. There's certainly value in this. For example, it, it can help keep the main things the main things. It also makes sermons much easier to follow because you're getting mainly a 20,000-foot overview. I've chosen not to do it that way. As you know, I get down into the details, sometimes phrase by phrase, because I don't want you to just see the big points. I want you to see how Paul arrives at those big points. You know, kind of like how your math teacher doesn't just want to give you the answers. She wants to teach you how to get those answers for yourself. I want you to see how to ask questions of the text and how to follow Paul's argument and how he arrives at those big points. Now, the downside of sermons like this is that if you really want to get something out of this kind of sermon, you can't just put your mind on idle like when you're watching a sitcom. You have to follow along in your Bible and focus for 20 minutes. It takes concentration and effort to follow along. But I think it's well worth the effort. It is God's word, after all. Before we dig in, let's pray. Father, we have so much going on in our lives. It's hard for us to focus for 20 minutes. But Lord, we ask that your spirit would help us do just that. And that you would speak to us through your word and draw us into a closer relationship with you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by reading chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, and not on earthly things. So Paul says we have been raised with Christ. But what does that mean? How have we been raised with Christ? This is where context is important. Earlier in chapter 2, Paul talked about the symbolism of baptism, being buried with Christ and being raised with him. Now, before coming to Christ, our whole self was devoted to anything but him. It might have been money might have been power, or career, or family, or sex, or entertainment, or self, anything but Jesus. Baptism symbolizes 
our declaration to put all that old self to death and to be raised as a new person, a new person who is committed to Jesus Christ above all else is the ultimate king and commander of our life. That is the sense in which we have been raised with Christ. So Paul says that to set your hearts and minds on things above rather than on earthly things. Now, to be honest, we have to pay attention to those earthly things, right? I mean, if we have bills to pay, we have to pay the bills. If something around the house breaks down, we have to get it fixed. If the cupboards are empty, we need to go shopping. Paul is not preaching some kind of mystical escapism. He's just telling us where our primary focus should be. Our primary or ultimate goal should be to glorify God and to please him and not just to please ourselves. In other words, to set our hearts and minds on things above. In verse 3, Paul says, For you died, that is, in your baptism, you expressed your declaration or your desire to die to everything you put above God. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? What does it mean that our life is hidden with Christ in God? I think Paul explains this idea more fully in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, my old self that focused on me, myself, and I is dead. Christ now lives in me. And my ultimate focus is to live for him. My life has been hidden with Christ in God. Ideally, when people see us, they should see Christ in us or working through us. In other words, our life should be hidden with Christ in God. In verse 4, Paul continues, When Christ, who is your life, in other words, for those who truly live by faith in the Son of God, he is our life. He is our everything. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears or returns, he will return with us. Those who have died in Christ, those who are genuine Christians, will come back to earth with him. Those who are still on earth when uh, when he comes will be raptured to meet him in the clouds and will also return with him. So Paul urges believers to set their hearts and minds on things above and don't focus on all the man-made rules and regulations imposed by the false teachers. But that doesn't mean that Christians can ignore all moral or ethical rules and regulations. Paul goes on to explain in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. When Paul says put it to death, he simply means stop doing it. Much easier said than done, of course, but being a Christian doesn't mean we're sinless. It means, among other things, we want to stop doing things that are displeasing to God things that belong to our earthly nature. What things? Well, still in verse 5, Paul begins by listing some of those things, 
sexual immorality, impurity, and lust, or some versions say passion. Sexual desire is hardwired into us, of course, and is not evil by itself. In fact, it's how God ensured that we would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But its misuse and abuse have devastating consequences. Sexual immorality and impurity includes any kind of sexual relations outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. And the word lust just means passion or strong desire and can be used in either a positive or negative sense depending on the context. In this context, it's obviously negative. I've read that some Pharisees would walk around looking down at the ground all the time and never looking up because they were afraid they might see a woman and lust after her. But lust doesn't mean that you just notice that someone is beautiful or handsome or sexy. Lust is about focus and imagination. Martin Luther reportedly once said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. By the way, lust also includes pornography. If you're into pornography, you need to stop. If you can't stop, you need to get help. There are porn blocking programs you can get. And there's a Christian, there's Christian counseling available specifically for pornography addiction. Matthew 5.29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is not literally encouraging self-mutilation. He's saying you need to take whatever drastic action necessary to get victory over this problem. And as I said, the word lust just means strong desire. So Paul puts, puts lust, evil desires, and greed together in verse 5. Lust is not just sexual. There can be lust, lust for power, lust for money. Lust for things. When your desire or greed for things is greater than your desire for God, it is idolatry, as Paul says in verse 5. And in verse 6, he adds that because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Pastors who preach only about God's love and compassion are not preaching the whole counsel of God. The Bible also has a lot to say about sin, repentance, God's wrath, and hell. Paul continues in verse 8, saying, You must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. The first on this list is anger. Now, not all anger is sinful, of course. The Gospel of Mark says Jesus got angry. In Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, don't hold on to your anger. Don't let it fester into bitterness. Don't let it turn into malice, which is the idea of ill will or bad intentions. And malice can easily turn into slander, which includes the idea of saying things for the purpose of damaging someone's reputation. After slander, Paul says we are to rid ourselves of filthy language. This includes things like cursing and dirty jokes. 
But in this context of malice and slander, some scholars believe that filthy language may also include abusive language. Language doesn't have to be cursing to be abusive. And Christians should never be abusive in their language, and certainly not in their behavior. In verse 9, Paul says, do not lie to each other. Many Christian discussions on lying often get bogged down on whether it is ever okay to lie under any circumstances. The classic example is in World War II when Nazi soldiers would ask a family if there were any Jews in the house. Should the family lie to protect the Jews hiding in the house? Or should they tell the truth, betraying the Jews to likely death? This is a good discussion to have, but don't let the possible exceptions sidetrack you from the fact that Christians should be known for their honesty. Do not lie to each other, Paul says. So summarizing verses 5 to 9, Paul says to stop your immorality and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lying. And he adds in verses 9 and 10, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Because in baptism, chapter 2, you declared your old self to be dead and proclaimed that you are now risen with Christ in a new life of total allegiance to him, act like it. Put on the new self, Paul says. Verse 10 says this new self is being renewed. In other words, putting to death or stopping all these bad things does not usually happen overnight. It is often a long process of working out what you proclaimed in your baptism, that you are indeed a new person who puts Christ first in your life. Verse 10 also says this new self is being renewed in the image of its creator. And in the image of our creator, Paul says in verse 11, there are no, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. In other words, in Christ, there should be no social, racial, or ethnic divisions. We are all one in Christ. Martin Luther King was exactly right when he taught that people should be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. Tragically, the new anti-racism movement seeks to overturn all that and make race central to everything. The anti-racism movement, based on critical race theory, is itself racist to the core. For Christians, we are all one in Christ, and someone's skin color or social standing or ethnic background should be no more significant than the color of one's hair or whether we even have hair. Anyway, so far, Paul has been focusing on examples of negative attitudes and behaviors, focusing on things we should be dying to or stopping. In verses 12 to 14, Paul will now tell us how to live what kind of people God wants us to be. So in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When Paul uses the illustration of clothing yourselves with these things, he means just do it. Be compassionate. Be kind. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. These things shouldn't need to be explained, just practice. Unfortunately, many progressive Christians today seem to interpret passages like this as if they mean that compassion and kindness means that we should be accepting of all lifestyles. As I pointed out in my last Thought for the Week essay a couple of weeks ago, it is not always compassionate or kind to give people what they want. For example, it is not compassionate or kind to give double chocolate fudge brownies to someone with diabetes, no matter how much he may want them. It is not compassionate or kind to give liquor to an alcoholic. We should absolutely be compassionate and kind, even to those who practice sinful lifestyles. But that does not mean encouraging and supporting such lifestyles, as progressives often do. In verse 13, Paul goes on to say, bear with each other. My guess is that many of you here this morning can think of someone you have a personality conflict with, or someone who just annoys you. Unfortunately, some people respond to such annoyances by blowing them out of proportion and gossiping. Paul says we should bear with each other. That doesn't mean we put up with sins like violence and immorality or abuse or malicious gossip, for example. It has to do with putting up things like personality conflicts or quirks, annoyances. Bearing with each other is is putting up with annoyances in love. Ah, that's just Henry. He doesn't mean anything by it. But when the annoyances turn into offenses or sin, Jesus says you should confront those who sinned against you. That doesn't solve the problem. Jesus says to take a couple of people with you. If that still doesn't solve the problem, believers can take it to the church. But you must be willing to forgive. So Paul continues in verse 13 saying, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness can be a very difficult thing. Sometimes it's a process that takes time. But for someone who decides they will never forgive, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 15, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Verse 14, Paul says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is like the glue that holds all this together. Christ's love for us and our love for Christ should motivate us to put away things like anger, rage, malice, to practice things like kindness, compassionate, patience, and forgiveness. Verse 15, Paul says to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. The word rule in this verse can have the idea of a judge ruling in a dispute between two people. 
when two Christians can't agree, their objective should never be winning at all costs. Their objective should be that if all possible, if at all possible, the peace of Christ would rule or prevail. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul closes in verse 17 saying, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus in this context is to do things in accordance with his revealed will in Scripture. It is to do those things that are pleasing to him and to avoid those things which are not pleasing to him. Whatever we do, that should be our goal. While giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times in these last verses, Paul mentions thankfulness or gratitude. If you think gratitude was important to Paul, you would be right. In fact, gratitude is so important that in Romans 1, Paul says the judgment of God comes upon unbelievers because, quote, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. An attitude of gratitude or thankfulness is important to mental, physical, and spiritual health. So just as an example for the kids here today, do you realize that there are kids all over the world who are homeless? Some who are orphans who live in plywood or cardboard boxes. Many are starving and eat food from trash cans or city dumps. Many kids who do have homes have moms or dads who don't even want them and may even abuse them. You may think you have a tough life, but if you have a mom or a dad who loves you and provides for you, and you have a home to live in and food to eat, you are incredibly blessed and should regularly thank both God and your parents. So because thankfulness is so important, I'm going to close with the same closing prayer I prayed three weeks ago. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that I can breathe freely and think clearly. Thank you that I can see, hear, taste, feel, and smell. Thank you that I can talk and walk and have use of my arms and hands. Thank you for the health that I have and that I live without severe pain. Thank you that I live in relative safety and freedom. Thank you that I have a home to live in that is warm in the wintertime, and for many of us, cool in the summertime. Thank you that I have plenty of good food to eat, and unpolluted water to drink, and nice clothes to wear. Thank you that I have a bed to sleep in. Thank you for my family, my friends, and my church. And above all else, thank you for the amazing love and grace you poured out toward me on the cross of Calvary. Heavenly Father, for these blessings and so much more, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.